Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. So I hope everyone's doing well. Thank you for tuning in again for another episode. Every year around July the 4th, because I live in the United States, I am reminded of the nation's independence, July the 4th being our main civic holiday in which we celebrate the War of Independence, independence from from Britain, and the formation of the nation. And as would be expected, there's a lot of uh, patriotic music, uh, signage, things on the TV, commercials, gatherings. It's a, it's a federal holiday, so everybody's off. And I've also noticed that for whatever reason, it's one of the highest Friday prayers in attendance uh, in the United States. So even if Independence Day does not fall on a Friday, I've found that the Friday in uh, either before or after, it seems to be very highly attended. Uh, and then the other one would be Thanksgiving, uh, which is you know another American holiday in November. So this year, uh, I got to thinking a little bit about the issue or the subject of Islam and politics. And as controversial as that might be, I thought that I wanted to get some thoughts out there on on this uh, on this forum. Now, this is not going to be by any means a comprehensive discussion, but at least I wanted for myself to get out there and record some initial thoughts, and then hopefully we can build build on them. Now, when I talk about, or when we talk about Islam and politics, it would be very easy to to talk about the importance of self-determination, uh, political independence. In the case of the United States, there are values enshrined in the founding documents, such as the, the right for the pursuit of happiness. And every country, every nation has its own internal struggles that they must overcome, challenges they must overcome for that union, for that political union to survive. So even though what the catalyst for my discussion is my home country, the United States, and independence and all of that, I think that this is, and hopefully a discussion that transcends one nation and is something that hopefully we can emerge and agree is, is an Islamic value. Now, all of those things are significant, those minor minor topics, and, and I think that we should reflect on them. But what I, what I want to do here is not talk about the minor topics, but talk about something greater, and that is the importance of our political union vis-a-vis our faith, wherever we may be. And you might find it strange that I would address this topic on this forum, or you might find it strange that somebody in the name of Islam would speak about uh, patriotism positively. Unfortunately, we are uh, all too used to hearing uh, people 
criticize governments, particularly in the West, criticize the United States, criticize uh, uh, aggressive postures that it might take towards the Muslim world, uh, its support for certain states and its lack of support for other states, etc. That's unfortunately what we're used to hearing. And one of the regrettable things of the modern Muslim is the inability to discern differences. One of the greatest lessons I learned when I was studying uh, at Al-Azhar was this power and this tool of discernment. They used to call it, or they call it Al-Aqlu Al-Fariq, you know, the, the intellect that can discern differences. And to not be able to do that is really a sign of a lazy mind when people lump things together. So, what are we not able to discern if we are used to hearing all of this negative talk vis-a-vis -vis Islam and politics and then me trying to add into this discussion but another vantage point, something that is positive. Why is this? What are we being lazy in discerning? And there, that is that we must recognize that there is a difference between high politics and low politics. There's a difference between high politics and partisan politics. High politics deal with the meta-issues that bind us together as a polity. They are the issues that are above party, above religion, above gender, above anything and everything that can and does divide us. High politics concerns the most central aspects of our social existence. That's what I mean by Islam and politics. And that's what Aristotle meant when he said that uh, mankind or the human being is a political animal. What he meant is that type of politics, the politics that are needed, the high politics that are needed to bring a group of people together in union, in harmony. And high politics is so important, it is so crucial that it stirs in us the greatest and deepest emotions. Some people, the sight of a flag brings up these emotions, hearing some type of patriotic tune, remembering a battle or a struggle in the past and the loss of loved ones that perished in that struggle, even the mentioning of a date. These things, or a name from history, can bring up the deepest levels of emotions within us. And that is quite natural. In describing the Prophet wasallam. One of the things that Imam al-Dhahabi said is that he used to love his homeland. And from this sentiment, there emerged within our tradition this statement, Hubbul Watan min al-Iman, love of the homeland or love of the nation or love of country is from faith. Now people mistake in it and they think it's a hadith. It's not a hadith, but it's a statement of fact. It's a fact that the Prophet, peace be upon him, used to love his homeland, used to love Mecca, to the point that he would speak to Mecca. He would talk to Mecca. He would say, you know, how beautiful are you and how wonderful are you and you are the most beloved of lands to me, but if it were not that your people expelled me, I would have not left. You know, addressing the Kaaba, addressing Mecca, the city. Uh, and now we refer to Mecca as a city, but at that time it was uh, its own polity, it was its own state, and Medina then emerged as another state, separate from Mecca before the conquest of Mecca of the Prophet towards the end of his life, alayhi salatu so this is something that is very natural, that a true understanding of our faith, the practice of true Islam, leads to love for one's nation, one's union, one's country. This is a natural outcome of our practicing of our faith. Our faith, our belief, and our practice engenders a patriotic spirit. 
And it celebrates our political union and it reminds it that faith is not the only marker of association and ties. We do not live alone, just amongst people like us, but rather we live in a plural world as God has intended. This is one of the things that Allah Ta'ala mentions, that this is min ayatihi, this is one of his signs, that we are different in our race, different in our creed, different in our uh, backgrounds, etc. This is the splendor of the human condition. So having said that, the question then is why is this important? Why is it important to talk about high politics? Why is it important to talk about high politics vis-a-vis faith? And what does our faith, uh, if anything, have to say about this topic? To answer this question, I went back in my mind to some of the jurists who cast a glance at the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now, the the jurists, when they look at the seerah, their job is not the job of the historian. The job of the historian is to record the events, uh, no matter the strength of the narration of the different events, but to catalog everything that happened in the life of the Prophet without deriving from those things, from those incidences, lessons, uh, from a fiqh point of view. Now, the job of the jurist is different. The, the job of the jurist is to look at the seerah. One of the jobs of the jurist is to look at the seerah and notice that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslim community did certain things in certain places and did not do certain things in certain places. In other words, they are looking for the context. One of the things they look at is the context in which certain ahkam, rulings of the Sharia, are practiced or withheld. It, that, that it's not all the same, that the human condition is very, very different. So there are certain times, you know, for example, I mean, a simple example, just so it's not so abstract, is what happens when you're sick and it's Ramadan or you're sick and you have to pray. You know, you can combine your prayers, you break your fast. That's different than if I'm not sick and I'm not traveling. I don't have that, that dispensation. So if I'm sick, I can break my fast in the month of Ramadan. But if I'm not sick, I can't. So there are different conditions, different times and modes in which that ruling the, the, or in that instance, in that example, the command to fast is withheld. And you can extrapolate you know, th- to everything else. That's what the jurists were looking at. So from a macro level, again, if we just step back a little bit, from a macro level, the jurists notice that there are certain freedoms that are needed for Islam and its entirety to be practiced. To be able to gather and pray the five daily prayers, or to be able to gather and pray Joma prayer, to, to be able to build a mosque in the first place, uh, to learn about our faith, to be able to marry according to the Sharia, divorce according to the Sharia, uh, to be able to bury our, our loved ones that have passed away according to the Sharia, to prepare foods according to our own laws and customs. All of these things and, and many, many more require freedom and safety. They require the freedom and the safety to be able to carry those things out. And when those conditions, those overarching conditions exist, the jurist called that mode of living Darul Islam, the abode of Islam. And here, many people are mistaken, and they assume that the, the concept of Darul Islam is a concept and a function of majority rule. But rather, it is a function of freedom. It is a function of liberty. Is that when you are free to do those things, that condition is called Darul Islam. And that's what they learned. So when the companions... Uh, for example, were persecuted in Mecca before the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ, the first 13 years of his risal, of his of his prophethood in Mecca, 
There was great persecution towards the companions. And some of the companions, the early companions, were elderly, disenfranchised people, weak. So the Prophet ﷺ allowed them to, or, or told them to go make hijrah, to migrate to Abyssinia, and to live under the protection of its Christian king, Al-Najashi, who was known to be just. Now, when the companions arrived in Abyssinia, they were given the freedom to assemble as Muslims. And there they created their own Dar al-Islam, despite the fact that they were an extreme minority, and remained so. And even till now, the Muslims of Ethiopia are a minority. But they were given this freedom to practice their faith in, in safety, which is a freedom that they did not have in the city or the state of Mecca at that time. And this freedom was so powerful, it was so strong, that even after the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ from Mecca to Medina, many of the Muslim compa- the companions in Ethiopia, in, in Abyssinia, didn't migrate to Medina. And there were companions that were born there. Or I guess they were not companions then, they were, unless th- they met the Prophet ﷺ, but the, the companions had children there and, and raised them there. And even till today, the Muslim community, part of the Muslim community in Ethiopia, prides itself that it is you know, from the original, the first generation uh, of Muslims. So for this reason, Imam al-Mawardi, who was one of the great uh, Shafi'i jurists and judges, he states that when the conditions to practice Islam and assemble as Muslims exist, Dar al-Islam exists, regardless of demographics. And I know that that might sound like a surprise to people because unfortunately extremists, uh, they, they, use, they try to reappropriate these terms Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Harb, and that's definitely not something that I want to get in today, but... I want just to talk about this idea. I want people to understand that Dar al-Islam, the abode in which Islam is, is exists, is a function of freedom and liberty. It is the it is freedom that is so fundamental and so necessary that when it is threatened, we are often called upon to depend it, to to defend it rather, even at the cost of our lives. And that is why, when it comes to these great civic moments. Uh, that we commemorate the founding of a nation or the uh, the, the um, victory in a, in a decisive battle of the past, uh, the uh, overcoming some type of internal you know great internal obstacle, whether it be civil war, civil strife, rights for minority group, whatever the case may be, we celebrate it. We celebrate it, and in our in in my context as an American, uh, President Lincoln uh, in. In the Gettysburg Address, he said that the people that struggled for this freedom, they gave the last full measure of devotion, which is a very beautiful phrase. I mean, to, to put one's life at, at, at on the line to defend this high politics, the union that binds, the political union that binds us together, which essentially is to protect our freedom as citizens. In the context of this episode, I'm talking about the practicing of a specific faith, Islam, but this is freedom that we need, anybody needs, and any political union to just be who they are. It's, he, President Lincoln called it the last full measure of devotion. I mean, this is the, the, the utmost that one can do. Likewise, the companions, radiallahu anhum, they were called on to make this sacrifice, living under the auspices of the Najashi. When a neighboring kingdom attacked the empire of Axiom, which, is, which, which was the name of the empire of a Najashi, and they fought side by side with the Najashi, putting their lives on the line to protect their freedom, to protect their ability and their right to practice Islam. And when a Najashi won that conflict, the companions commenting on that, 
said that that was the happiest day of our lives. That's a huge statement. I mean, these are people that lived with the Prophet ﷺ, saw him in action, believed in him, were taught Islam by him. I mean, they saw it. And for them to say this statement, that the day that the Najashi was given victory was the happiest days of their lives, that's a huge statement to what we are trying, what I'm trying to, to, to drive at here, which is that that high politics, that whether, whether it's a republic or a kingdom or a state, that, that ability to be safely organized under a political unity with your neighbors in safety, to be able to practice, live your life in peace, to practice your faith in peace, that is the ultimate goal that we seek. So, which is not a personal goal, but it's a collective goal. And because of that, as the companions did, and as so many other people and so many other nations throughout history, they put their lives on the line to defend that. So when we think about these um, civic days, or it doesn't have to be around the, the civic holidays, but just when we, when we come to the topic of Islam, I think it's important that we recognize that our faith engenders in us this patriotic spirit, this respect for our political unity. This does not mean that uh, our state, when we say we exist in a state of Darul Islam, that doesn't mean that it's perfect. You know, no political uh, body is perfect, nor will it ever be perfect. There is no perfection in that regard. But it is something to celebrate that we are, for those of us that are blessed to be able to freely practice our faith, whether we, if you're listening, you're a minority, like I am, or whether you live in the Muslim majority country, all of those are blessings. Because there are, unfortunately, many people in our faith community around the world that do not have that freedom to practice their faith, whether it is to fast, whether it is to, to learn the Qur'an, whether it is even to pray. Commun- I mean, these you know, basic things that many of us take for granted it's, it's a blessing, it's, it's, a, it's a gift that we're able to do that safely and in peace. And therefore, when it comes to remembering uh, the political circumstance that allows that, it is cause for celebration. And that we should see this country as our country, this home as our home, this nation as our nation, wherever we may be. Now having said that, um, I want to, as I move towards the end of this discussion for now, I do want to say something about low politics, or as I've mentioned uh, in the beginning, partisan politics, which is basically everything other than what I just said. It is, you know, party lines, elections, uh, the issues at hand, the social issues, uh, fiscal issues, foreign policy, domestic, all of these things. That's what we call, or what I call in this context low politics not to disparage it but to say that it is underneath the higher politics that we've just talked about and basically there is no role for islam in that and i know that that will sound upsetting to people controversial to people maybe you heard that and you just sort of shut off you don't even listen to the rest of it i respect that but i believe so strongly in it that it's something that I wanted to record and get out there and hopefully start a conversation. It is a grave, grave mistake to insert religion, any religion, into low and partisan politics. And the reason is is that religion is a meta thing. It's a meta identification. It's a meta belief that encompasses 
people of different persuasions, political persuasions, economic backgrounds, race, gender, etc. Religion is something that is to bind us together. It is something to hold us together, not to drive us apart. So, and in, in, in unfortunately, in the context of the United States or in the Western world, there is a lot of social pressure for Muslims to organize themselves as a political unit to demonstrate their strength in numbers and vote along certain lines. And that is extremely, extremely, extremely dangerous. As a matter of fact, it's dangerous for any religion to do that. Whether somebody is a pastor or a priest or a rabbi or a monk or whatever, these people endorsing candidates, endorsing parties in the name of religion is a grave, grave, grave mistake. Because it uses religion in something that is lower than its calling rather than binding people together. So if I say this is a Muslim candidate, does that mean the other candidates are not Muslim? Or if there is a Muslim candidate, meaning there is a, a person of the Islamic faith that's running for some kind of office, and I'm a Muslim, does that mean I have to vote for that person? And I can't even if I disagree with some of their policies? And all of these questions and these iterations is, is why is the reason I'm saying this, is that that's very dangerous. I can't say, you know, I can't say, you know, I'm a mufti and I endorse so-and-so, or I'm a mufti and I endorse this party. I mean, does that mean that therefore that the other party is un-Islamic and that if you vote for them, it's haram, etc.? No, of course not. So religion is not to be used in that sense. We if you're a Muslim and you live in a society in which there's open political participation and parties, and you know, like in the United States, for example, or Western Europe, yeah, you should and, and can get involved in those issues because they're issues that concern us all, but not in the name of the faith. That's what, well, that's what I'm trying to say. If you want to run for office and you're a Muslim, uh, fine, all the power to you, but don't lead with your faith and don't expect me in the name of the faith to endorse you. But we can talk as citizens, as neighbors, about the issues at hand, separate from religion. And unfortunately, maybe these comments are, you know, sometimes I feel like they're too late because sometimes when I look at what's happening uh, with the use of religion and partisan politics or low politics, it's sort of, I mean, I think the damage is already done, unfortunately. And and really, from my side, when I I, I, I receive a lot of the... The, the fallout from that because I do a lot of counseling and I see a lot of people disillusioned with faith disillusioned with faith leaders and many times it is because of this reason it's because they they are drawn into the faith through the mix of faith and partisan politics and then when one certain vision of politics doesn't manifest there's almost a disbelief not just in the politics because they lost but also in the faith because in their mind the two were the same but they're not the same. We are patriotic. We should support our, our political union, uh, support the, the freedoms that we have, protect the freedoms that we have in the name of the faith, yes. But when it comes to partisan politics, we have to take that hat off. We have to suspend that identity and we have to be able to argue solely, solely on the issues. And we should argue. If we are able to participate, we should argue and, and promote certain issues because they affect us. What happens in education, the healthcare system, uh, domestic policy, fiscal policy, taxes, foreign policy, all of that stuff, we're all part of that. We're not alone. That's fine, but not in the name of Islam. Not in the name of Christianity. Not in the name of Judaism. Not in the name of Buddhism. Not in the name of Hinduism, etc. 
And there's nothing I find more repulsive than a religious political party. I mean, I just think it's, it's not just oxymoron. It's offensive. It's offensive for everything religion stands for. It's offensive. It, 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 it dilutes the message of religion. And it tricks people that are not able to discern the differences. So I leave with that. I think that that's something. And again, I know that many people will maybe not like what I'm saying or how I'm saying it. I mean, there's a, I always say there's a thousand ways you can say things. So I, I, I am sorry that if I rub somebody the wrong way. But it is something that we must think about. We must discuss. Uh, and I hope to do so in future episodes or other venues. Maybe I'll take to writing. I'll leave it there. I hope everyone is well, and I will see you soon. Take care.